0: And work. If you have a Bible, take it out. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And if you need a Bible, you're welcome to have the Bible in the seat in front of you. We would love for you to take it. I'd like you to find Luke chapter 12 this morning. We're talking about parables on Sunday mornings, and so. As we've done many Sundays now, just start with our definition of parables so we start off on the same foot. parable is a story taken from real life that teaches a moral or a spiritual truth. It's not an allegory that you try to decode. It's not a fable that sort of has fantasy elements in it. It's just a, a regular story taken from everyday life that helps you understand a moral or a spiritual truth. Jesus is talking to people who shared culture and shared language with him and had many shared experiences. And so when he talks about lamps or he talks about wedding parties or he talks about mustard seeds, all these different things were familiar to his original audience. And Jesus is using concrete ideas to take sort of abstract spiritual thought and bring it down to a level where his audience could understand it. At the same time, he's not just making it easy for people to understand his point because many times, like the passage we're going to look at this morning, people came to Jesus with a question. They wanted to know something, and people who are asking Jesus questions are a lot like you and I. They probably wanted a direct answer, a yes or a no or a this is what it is. And many times, Jesus just didn't give them a direct answer. Instead, he told them a story. He told them A parable. And if they weren't willing to think about the parable, if they weren't willing to think about the story, they missed the truth that Jesus was trying to communicate with them. And that's certainly true in our passage this morning. Just a little bit of context before we read from Luke 12. Jesus had just been teaching about eternal weighty matters. And you can go back and look at that in Luke chapter 12, verse 4 to 12. Right before Jesus tells this parable... He's been teaching about eternal weighty matters, and when I typed that out this week, the first thing I thought was, well, isn't that what he always talked about, eternal weighty matters? He didn't walk around and have, uh, some preachers call it a sugar stick, he beat the church with a sugar stick, and it's just like a make-you-feel-good sermon, a light, a fluffy, uh, everybody leaves and you're just all warm fuzzies. Jesus didn't preach many things like that. He usually talked about eternal weighty matters, but it's certainly true. It's even more true in Luke chapter 12, and you can go back and read Luke 12, 4 to 12. Jesus is talking about life and death, physical life and physical death, and he's also talking about spiritual life and spiritual death and he's warning people about the realities of life and death and the realities of eternal life and eternal death. And into the middle of that weighty, serious conversation, a man walks up, an unnamed man from the crowd, and he asks a a question that's completely out of left field. If you've ever been a Bible teacher, you've had this happen to you. Some of you had it happen to you this week at VBS with kids, right? Right? You're teaching along and you're saying to yourself, man, I'm making a great point. This is awesome. I'm, I'm connecting with my audience here and you're humming along through your lesson. And then all of a sudden a hand goes up and a student or a youth or maybe an adult, some of you know this happens in adult classes too, hand goes up and the question comes out and is the teacher what you want to say is, what does that have to do with anything that we're talking about? That, has nothing to do with what I'm talking to you about. And that's exactly what happens here. Jesus is talking about life and death and eternal life and eternal death. And just jump ahead to verse 13. We're not going to read the whole passage. But Luke says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And you just know that Jesus, you know, I don't know what Jesus did, what his facial expression was, but part of me would like to think that before he gave the answer, he said this. Take a breath. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. And the parable that Jesus tells this man in response You've got to understand it came from this question that came totally out of left field and the things that Jesus is warning him about are weighty, eternal matters. And so moving through the outline here, Jesus told this parable in response to a thoughtless, materialistic, selfish question you understand when this guy comes to Jesus and he says tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me it's thoughtless because it has nothing to do with what Jesus has been has been talking about he wasn't listening to Jesus it's totally materialistic he's not thinking about eternal things he's thinking about earthly things literally money and an estate and it's totally selfish because he doesn't present his brother's side of the argument and you know the brother had a side to the argument he simply says, Do it my way. And I just want to caution you against the danger of coming to Jesus and asking him to stamp with approval your agenda. That's what this man does. He's not coming to Jesus to listen to him, he's not coming to Jesus really even to ask for help for a desperate situation. He's not coming to Jesus with a submissive heart willing to do whatever it is that Jesus says. He's coming to Jesus with his own agenda and he's saying to Jesus, this is what I want to happen and I want you to make it happen. Be very careful that you don't come to Jesus with the exact same mindset. I know exactly how I want things to go in my life. I've got it all worked out. Jesus, I can, you know, I can send you an email with all the details or I can text it to you. I just need you to make it happen exactly like this and stamp it with approval. That's what this man does. It's a thoughtless, materialistic, selfish question. And Jesus responds by talking to him about money. The whole parable centers on money. And the the man who asked this question, he's centered on money. And so let me just say one or two thoughts here about money before we get to the big idea. The Bible does not condemn wealth. We've got to all get that through our brains. The Bible does not condemn wealth. You can think of the Old Testament example of Joseph. Yes, Joseph suffered greatly, but there was a long stretch of, chi- uh, stretch of time when Joseph had incredible wealth. And he's presented as a righteous man who handled that wealth well. You can think about Lydia in the New Testament, presented as a woman who had means. She had wealth but she's presented as a godly woman who served in her church and contributed to missions. So the Bible doesn't condemn wealth. However, the Bible does warn about the dangers of wealth. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve God and money. You'll love one and hate the other, or you'll hate the one and love the other, but you can't serve two masters. Of all the things that he could have picked out, To single that lesson in on, he could have picked relationships, he could have picked status, he could have picked, you know, power, he could have picked any number of things. He says money. You can't serve God and money. And you can plug any of those other things into that equation and it's still true. But to make his point, he says you can't serve both of these things. And Paul warns Timothy that the love and the desire to have money leads to all sorts of different evils in your life. It will lead you down trails of sin that you never thought you would go down, and it'll lead you down trails of sin that you don't even realize you're going down. So the Bible doesn't condemn wealth, meaning if you're a wealthy American, you don't need to feel guilty about that. However, the Bible warns about the dangers of wealth, and as a wealthy American, we need to be aware of what the scriptures say. So here's the big idea, and then we'll read the passage. Jesus is warning us about the danger of focusing on this life and ignoring the life to come. That's the big idea of the parable. There's a danger in focusing only on this life and ignoring the life to come. I left money out of the big idea, okay? We're going to talk a lot about money this morning, but I left it out of the big idea because I think money is just the one issue in this man's life who comes to Jesus with this off-the-wall question. Money is the one issue in his life that reveals a deeper issue, and the deeper issue is he's totally consumed with the here and the now, and he has no idea that there's a life to come that he needs to prepare for. So let's read the passage, and then we'll pray, and we'll break it down. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he, that's Jesus, said to them, the crowd, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, It's the scriptures, the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for ears to hear what Jesus is saying to us this morning. Help us to understand the dangers that we face because we live where we live and when we live. Help us to hear the warnings that Jesus is offering and the example of this rich fool Father, help us to see the dangers of focusing only on this life and neglecting the life to come. Father, give us hearts this morning to respond to your word. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to look at this parable with sort of two different perspectives. Maybe you could say on two different levels. First, we're going to say, what is the parable? Have to say to us about money, and then we're going to say, what does the parable have to say to us about eternal matters? And so, on one level, the parable is clearly about money, and we'll make a few observations as we think about money here. The first observation is this the rich fool failed to acknowledge God's provision. He totally fails to acknowledge God's provision. He's what you might call a practical atheist, a practical atheist. Obviously, this is a a made-up story. Jesus isn't really talking about a real person. That's sort of a parable, what it is by nature. It's a made-up story, but it's familiar. And I imagine if you look at most people in the world like this rich fool, they would be people who profess faith in God. They wouldn't just be avowed, hardened atheists. But in their everyday life, they just don't think a whole lot about God. And then when this man, when he stops to reflect about his money and his life and where he is and how things are going, he never in any of his musings thinks about God. He thinks about himself an awful lot. There's a lot of I's and me's and my's in the passage. But there's really no thought directed toward who God is. And there's certainly no thought that God is the one who has given him this wealth. He just says, it's my wealth. What will I do with my wealth? And God's absent from his thoughts. To me, this is what, what you might call the sin of godlessness. You can look in Romans 1, and Paul talks about God's wrath being revealed against mankind. And Paul says, God's wrath is revealed against mankind for all their unrighteousness, and their ungodliness. And the idea in Paul's mind is that unrighteousness is sort of all the wicked, immoral, bad stuff that we do that God's angry with. And ungodliness is the fact that all of us have this tendency to live our lives with little or no thought to God and his glory. To just put it on autopilot and go through our day and live without thinking about God much. And some of you may be saying, man, I know that temptation, you know, I work in the oil field or I teach a classroom full of kids or I stay home with my kids, and it's just you get in the, you know, the mode of getting through the day and it's so easy. And I'll just be honest with you it's easy to be godless as a pastor because you're busy and you have things going on. All of us face this temptation just to sort of go through life thinking, what do I need to do next? Check it off my list, get it done, and to give little to no thought or God. And this man displays that to a, a high degree. When he sits down and he has a moment to think about life, he thinks about himself a lot, and he thinks about his money a lot, but he has no thought toward God. He has no category in his mind for thanking God, for providing him with the money that he has. So he fails to acknowledge God's provision. Secondly, the rich fool assumed his abundant wealth was for personal consumption. He assumed that all the money that God had blessed him with was for him to spend on himself. Look what he says in verse 18. I will do this. What am I going to do with all this stuff, all of my abundance? Verse 18, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll, I'll have it right there at my disposal, to do whatever I want to do with it. It'll all be mine, and I keep it all, and then I can spend it when I have the opportunity to spend it and use it when I have the opportunity to use it. No thought in his mind that maybe God blessed him with this abundance because there were people in his town who didn't have enough, and maybe he should share with those people. It would be anachronistic to say he didn't think of his church, but let's say this, he didn't think about his synagogue. Maybe my synagogue has a a ministry or a program, feeding widows or helping the community or doing something that I could contribute some of this abundance to. I don't have room for it anyways. I could give some to those who are in need to something else going on. No category for that. He assumes God has given me what he's given me or I have earned what I've earned simply so that I can spend it on myself is all... For personal consumption. Number three, he found security or he tried to find security in his wealth. And this is the kicker. This is really the kicker to the whole passage because it reveals why he built bigger barns. So I gave you the example of Joseph earlier, right? Joseph spent a lot of years in Egypt building bigger barns. Right, He was storing up grain and storing up food because this is what God had told him to do. This is why God had raised him up. But there was a purpose behind it. There was a motive in it. This man, the rich fool, says, I'm going to build bigger barns. Tear down the old ones. Build up bigger ones. And here's the reason why. Verse 19. So that in my soul, I can say to myself in the core of who I am, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I can be at ease. I won't have to worry. I won't have to be defrayed. I won't won't have to be dependent on anybody. I can be secure. And he's looking for security in his money. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Lastly, the rich fool was so focused on money, he failed to think about his own mortality. In all his planning and all his musing, there's no thought that maybe someday he just might die. Like, there's no end to it. How does it end? With just the bigger barns? The parable makes that point in verse 20. Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? They're not going to be yours because they're not going with you. But this man, in his obsession with his money... He's only focused on this life and he's completely ignoring the fact that someday he's going to die and all this stuff that he's built up is going to just be somebody else's. He's never read the book of Ecclesiastes and I know we're talking about an imaginary person here but just track with me. In the book of Ecclesiastes The author sits down, and he's thinking about life on this earth as if all that existed was on this earth, life under the sun. I'm considering all things under the sun. He's taking God out of consideration. And one of the things he says early on in the book is, you know, it's a strange thing. If this is all there is, and there is no God, and there is no afterlife, and there is no eternity, if this is it, I see a lot of people working really, really hard for money And in the end, they die. And I see an awful lot of people over here just squandering their life away, accomplishing nothing. And in the end, guess what happens to them? They die. They both die. And neither of them takes anything with them. And he comes to the end of looking at that in the book of Ecclesiastes and he says, What a waste! It's so pointless. This man is forgetting the fact that his life will come to an end and he's living as if his money can make him secure. He's living as if he is not going to be mortal. His life plan, I already read this, but I just want you to see his life plan. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Don't get mad at me. I love the United States, and I'm glad to live in the United States, but there may be no better description of the American dream than those words right there. Eat, drink, relax, be merry. Just have enough, and everything can be easy. Do you know how many people live in the Bible Belt in this country and go to church every single Sunday who live for that reason? They never move beyond that. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Churches in the Bible Belt are filled with people who, yes, they wake up early and come to church on Sunday. But if you really boil it down and you look at their life and you had a moment of honesty with them, they would have to admit, this is my life goal. I just want to relax. And eat and drink and be merry. I just want to be comfortable. It's a bad life goal. It's a bad life goal. You know, in medieval times, uh, they used to use a phrase called "memento mori," and they used to draw paintings like the one on the left. And we look back on that and we say, "Man, memento mori." It means remember you must die. And they paint skeletons holding on to people and we think oh that's weird why would you do that and then the puritans came along several hundred years later and they you know they didn't have selfies but they had people draw themselves and it's the equivalent and they you know take a selfie with a skull and we're like what? that's weird why no, i don't, i get on facebook i look at your facebook profiles none of you are holding a skull next to your face smiling hey it's me and a skull And we look on that and we say, man, they were obsessed with death. And if they could fast forward and jump ahead and sort of be here with us today, they would say, we weren't obsessed with death. We were just realistic about it. We just understood we're not going to live forever. And I think they'd spend a few days with us and they'd say, you people never think about death. You do everything in your power to push it to the back of your mind and to never deal with it or think about it or reckon with it. You've got to think about the fact that someday you're going to die. And this idea of memento mori, remember you must die, is probably a healthy practice for us to adopt. When I read the passage this week, I thought about two people. And I just want to tell you about two people that came to mind this week, okay? Reading about the rich fool. The first guy that came to mind I'll call Benny, okay? Real person, fake name, Benny, And Benny is a super rich guy, okay, by uh, worldly standards across the globe and by American standards and by, you know, middle class standards, this guy has a ton of money he's made his money in business and he's more than happy to sit and visit with you about how he made all his money he loves to tell the stories and you know sort of recount and reminisce about oh i made this big deal and i made this much money i made this big deal and i made this much money and believe me he has a lot of it a lot of it and for years benny has been building bigger barns and i mean that literally and i mean that sort of metaphorically Right? He has spent decades of his life just piling up money, looking for security and money, forgetting the fact that someday he's going to die, and just sort of saying, I want to relax, I want to eat, I want to drink, and I want to be merry. Now along the way, I'll be real honest to be fair to Benny, he's given a lot of money away. I mean, a lot of money. But he's kept a lot. And he just sort of has this feeling of, I have enough that I can relax and I can eat and I can drink and I can be merry, And he's very proud of that fact. And happy to visit with you about it and talk to you about it. And a few years ago, he got sick. Went in for sort of a routine procedure and they thought it went okay at first. It didn't go, go okay. And his health really deteriorated really, really quickly. And for about the last five years or so, he's been pretty much bedridden. And this period of time where he's been bedridden has sort of made him, my observation, anxious and angry at the same time. Anxious because he realized pretty quick, I got a lot of money and it is not going to make me well. There isn't enough money to fix what I have. You know, I can pay this doctor or that doctor, go to this hospital or that hospital, I'm just not getting better. And my observation is that makes him a little bit anxious. Angry because as he has spent an incredible amount of money on medical care, he has had to sit and watch his family sort of have a civil war over the fact that dad slash granddad slash great granddad is now spending all of their inheritance. And there's some jockeying and there's some buying. And I'm telling you, it's a total disaster. And I look at his life, and I've had so many heart-to-heart, serious conversations with him. And part of me just wants to say, your plan for decades was relax and eat and drink and be merry. And no, God didn't come in a single night and lay claim to your soul, but he laid claim to your health. And now you're realizing that all that money you had really doesn't give you much security after all. So that's the first person I thought of. You want to know who the second person I thought of was? Me. And I don't have near as much money as Benny does. I mean, not even within a country mile. Never will. But I face the same temptation that you face. And it's the same root issue that Benny's struggling with and it's the same root issue the rich fool is is struggling with. I face the temptation to think if I only had a little bit more, I could take a breath and relax. Just a little bit more. Brooke and I can go back and look at our tax returns from when we first got married. We got married in college and we both worked part-time jobs. And if you could transport me back to college and say, hey, in 15 years, this will be your income, I'd say, sign me up. Everything will be good. I won't have a care in the world. It'll be great. That would be amazing. But I'm like you. You just sort of get there gradually and slowly, and you find yourself there 15 years later, and you're still thinking, eh, just, if I just had a little bit more. I could, you could just get the house paid off. If I could just do this or have enough for that, then I would be secure. It's a temptation for me, just like it's a temptation for the rich fool in the parable, just like it's a temptation for my friend Benny, who has more than all of us put together, just like it's a temptation for you. I pray that when you read this parable of the rich fool, you get beyond dollar amounts, and you get to heart issues. And you think, you know, I may not be in a position to build bigger barns, but I may be wrestling with the exact same issues that this rich fool was wrestling with. So that's a few thoughts about money. Now let's talk about sort of bigger issues than just money, ultimate reality. On another level, the parable's about ultimate reality. Just a few thoughts about that. Number one, anyone who tries to find security outside of a relationship with God is a fool. It's a fool. Sometimes people get mad with some of the words that I've used in sermons. I don't think I've ever used anything remotely profane in a sermon, but sometimes people get upset. And I've had people get upset that I've used the word fool, like calling somebody foolish or calling somebody stupid. I'm just telling you, that's what the Bible is saying. When God looks down on this rich man, his summary or his evaluation is, you're a fool. Or to put it a little more bluntly, how we may say, we may say it today is, that's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you live that way? Why would you think that way? That's God's evaluation of this man is that he's a fool. And he's a fool because he's trying to find security in something outside of a relationship with God. So at the end of this series, when we get done wrapping up parables at the end of the summer, we're gonna spend uh, six or seven weeks talking about little G gods, just giving you a little preview. We're gonna talk about six of the most common places that you and I are tempted to look for security outside of a relationship with God. Right? You think about the Israelites and you think, oh, they worshiped a statue. How stupid was that? How foolish was that? Well, we may not be worshiping statues, but there's plenty of places we look for security and comfort and hope and joy and happiness outside of a relationship with God that are just as foolish as worshiping a golden calf. We're going to talk about some of those things. In this parable, the immediate context is talking about money, and he's a fool because he looks to money for his security. And if we're going to just extrapolate that out to broader issues, we could just add a few things to that list. We could say fools look to status and their reputation to make them feel good about themselves. Instead of finding their worth in what God has done for them through Christ, they look to what other people think about them. Fools look to a spouse to make them happy. And many times when that doesn't work out, they look to children to make them happy. And then many times when that doesn't work out, they look to grandchildren to make them happy. They look to other people to take the place that only God can take. Fools expect a career to be perfectly fulfilling. They just expect to go to work and punch the clock and come home every day just saying, I love my job. I love work. It's the best. It makes me feel so complete. They're looking to something to fill them up, to make them feel secure that we'll never be able to deliver on that promise. God calls this man a fool maybe the most obvious thing I've ever said from the platform. You don't want God to call you a fool. Right? You don't want your mom to use your middle name. You don't want a judge to give you an inmate number. There are certain things you don't want to hear in life, but you really don't want to hear the creator of the universe look at your life and evaluate your life and say, you're a fool. You missed it. It's about ultimate reality. Second idea is this. God can lay claim to your soul at any moment. God can lay claim to your soul at any moment. I don't know what to say to that to make it more heavy upon you or more weighty upon you than just saying it. God can claim your life whenever he's ready. I can't do anything to change that, to stop it. Doctors can't do anything to change that or stop it. Money can't do anything to change that or stop it. God can lay claim to your soul at any moment. You know, in the Old Testament, Abraham had to come to grips with that reality. God laid claim to his son, his only son, the son he loved. He laid claim to Isaac, and Abraham had to wrestle with that in one long night before he woke up in the morning, or maybe he didn't even wake up, maybe the sun just came up and he was still wrestling, and he said, I trust God to do what's right by my boy. And in this parable, not so much with a positive outcome, this fool realized and came to learn that God can lay claim to your soul at any moment. I think this is where we, we learn from people in the medieval period for all the you know, silly, superstitious things they maybe believed in. And we learn from the Puritans for all their shortcomings and all their mistakes. And we say we need to find ways to remind ourselves that we are going to die, that God can and will lay claim to our life at some point. And that's not a morbid thing. That's just a realistic thing, an honest thing. The last idea is this. God will hold every person accountable for how they steward his gifts. In this parable, the issue is money. This man has been entrusted with great wealth, and he's going to have to give an account for how he used that wealth. And we've talked about this on Sunday mornings. I know Corey's talked about it when he's preached, and I've talked about it. As Americans, we will give an account for the wealth that's been entrusted to us. 100%. Every one of you, blessed to live in this country, you will give an account for how you use that gift. But if we're moving beyond money, we can also say God's going to give us uh, this reckoning, this sort of uh, time to give an account for all of the things that he's entrusted to us. Our kids, our grandkids, this church. It's not our church, it's his church. We give an account for how we stewarded that. We give an account for how we use our time and our opportunities. We give an account for how we steward the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ, the day is coming when all people will give an account for how they use the gifts that God entrusted to them. And my prayer as we leave this parable is, yes, that we think about money and maybe we make some adjustments or we do some repentance or some confessing or, you know, make some resolutions about the directions we need to go, but that we also realize the bigger issue is it's not just all about this life. There's a whole nother life, an eternity coming that we've got to reckon with. And the end of the parable is just a haunting phrase. He's talking about this fool, and he says, you're like the kind of person who lays up treasure for yourself, but you're not rich towards God. And when you listen to Jesus, you realize all the money in the world, all the barns in the world, all the stuff in the world is of no significance when you think about being rich towards God. And my prayer for you is that you are rich towards God. And that certainly doesn't mean you check off all the things that you do to obey God and you try to earn your way with Him and pay your way with Him. The irony of the gospel is this. If you want to be rich towards God, you've got to start by admitting that you're not. That you're bankrupt. Not just that you're bankrupt, but that you have this debt that you could never repay to Him. And instead of looking to your own merits and your own abilities, you look to Christ. And you find righteousness not through your own goodness, but by trusting in Jesus and who he is and his life of obedience and his death on the cross. And the Bible says we get this inheritance, we get this life, we get this hope of eternity given to us as a gift. We get adopted into God's family and we find true wealth, not through ourselves, Not through anything that we can do here, but through Christ. And my prayer ultimately is that you know that sort of wealth. You have those sorts of riches and that you're looking to Christ for those things. So I'm going to end with prayer. If you'll bow, I'm going to pray for you and pray for myself. Pray for our church. Father, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful for these stories that Jesus told, these ancient stories. We believe that they're true. We believe that they have power. Father, we believe that they expose our hearts and our motives. Father, and we listen to a story like the one of this rich fool, and Father, unless our hearts are just rock hard, we're cut to the heart with conviction. Father, all of us can see ourselves, part of ourselves in this rich fool living in this world as if there was no life to come, trusting in money to give him security. Father, I pray for myself and I pray for those who are here this morning that we would look to Christ for life, for riches, for an inheritance, for security, for joy, for meaning, for purpose. Father, and I pray that if there are people here this morning who have never done that, that they would do it for the first time today. That they would turn from all of the little G gods that they've worshipped and they would turn to the living God. They would turn to you. Father, be honored as we sing and as we respond through music. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.